Welcome to Music and the Church with Sarah Bariza, a monthly podcast about thinking bigger in our faith, our ministries, and our churches. I'm Dr. Sarah Bariza, a writer and musician, and today I am joined by not one, not two, not three, but four different folks who are all contributors to a new book called Flow, The Ancient Way to Do Contemporary Worship. Last month's episode included Lester Ruth, Zachary Barnes, and Adam Perez talking about basically the first half of the book, kind of orienting us to what is this book about. And then this episode, we're really getting into the nitty gritty of how do you do the kind of worship that is being proposed in this volume. And I'll give us a quick overview of what this is about. And then we'll hear from each of these contributors about who they are, and then we'll dive into this kind of nitty-gritty content that's really focused on church musicians and how we can incorporate this approach to worship in our ministries. So the general argument of the book, as I understand it, you guys can all chime in if you if you want to suggest a different direction. As I understand it, it's uh, speaking mainly to people in the mainline denominations who are more familiar with traditional worship, especially as it's presented in the rubrics of their denominations. And the, the form that this book um, uses is from the United Methodist denomination. It's a book published by Abingdon Press, which is a United Methodist publisher. But it's really relevant to anyone who's working with a traditional type service and thinking about, well, what does it mean to do a contemporary service? Assuming contemporary doesn't mean, oh, look, I added drums in a song set instead of the first opening hymn. Great. Like if we're looking at a much more fundamental baseline, the fabric of the service kind of level, what does it mean to do contemporary worship when you are using a traditional form? And the specific form that this book looks at is the word and table form, the fourfold worship form where you have uh, entrance, you have um, the word, which could include a sermon, you have the table, and then you have the sending. So the fourfold worship pattern, uh, which is something that uh, you would find quite frequently in, you know, Episcopal, Lutheran, Catholic, Orthodox services, and is something that mainline churches have been doing more frequently. So that's that's the summary of the book as I understand it. And last month we talked about, you know, why and some of the big picture how, but this this month we're focusing in on really specific things like musical flow, spoken transitions, um, uh, the whole shape of a service, as well as our visual presentation and things we can do visually in a service, which I think for all of us living in the uncertainty of online and in-person worship in this global pandemic we're living through, uh, thinking about our visual stuff is really important right now. So let's hear from each of the con contributors. Uh, Debbie Wong, would you introduce yourself? Yeah. My name is Debbie Wong. Uh, I've been leading worship for a number of years now, in the mainly in the contemporary style. Um, I grew up in a Methodist background. I come from the Methodist Church of Singapore, and I mainly lead on the guitar, but also have dabbled in some other instruments. So I love to just think about how we do this, why we're doing this, uh, and I'm really excited to be here today. And uh, Jonathan Ottaway, could you introduce yourself? Yes, thanks for having us here, Sarah. So my name is Jonathan Ottaway. Um, I grew up originally in the Pentecostal church where I, uh, I grew up playing the piano, leading worship from as young as they could get me on the piano. 
at the same time, I also was a, a classical musician. I, I did my undergrad in music. So I grew up as a pianist and a bassoonist. Uh, the bassoon actually never made it into any church service I was a part of. Um, I feel like this is a, sh- a missed opportunity. It is. I actually, I, I'm now a music minister at an Anglican church and they're actually very happy I'm a bassoonist as well. So it's, it has now made an appearance in a church setting, which I'm delighted about. Um, I'm a doctoral candidate at Duke uh, and, and broadly I study biblical theologies of worship and I'm looking at 24-7 worship. And Glenn Stallsmith, would you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Glenn Stallsmith. And uh, like my uh, colleagues here, I'm uh, working on a doctor of theology degree at Duke Divinity School. Um, I grew up as a United Methodist, and I am currently an ordained elder um, in the United Methodist Church, and I'm pastoring a two-point charge here in North Carolina. In a previous life, I was a missionary and did ethnomusicology work uh, with people in the Philippines. And Andrew Eastus, how about you? Thanks for having us. I'm Andrew Eastus. I actually grew up in a Pentecostal church. That's my background and was a traveling minister for years in all kinds of different denominations, Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal, uh, all those kinds of things, which uh, gave me the great blessing of seeing the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to flow and worship services and what works and what doesn't and all those sorts of things. So great experience there. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of good, good, bad, and ugly to, to be had. <laughs> Jonathan, how about we start with you and thinking specifically about musical flow. And we talked a little bit in the last episode about what the heck do we even mean by the word flow, right? But can you orient us to just first, like, what do you mean by musical flow? What are we actually talking about here? If, if you were to talk to a Pentecostal worship leader, you know, they, there's this innate sense that a, a lot of musicians, worship leaders have uh, about how music runs together, flows together, uh, how there's a kind of essential continuity that uh, minimizes distractions, breaks, gaps. There's a, the, an inherent intentionality uh, to the whole service. And particularly there's a kind of, there's there's a constant handoff that goes on in in the service between musicians, people who are leading in spoken sp- speaking uh, capacities during the service, um, and so that that's an, one of the aspects of flow. Um, but it also talks about the, the the idea of flow. Thinks about how songs work together, how they inform each other, how that they create a structure without necessarily foregrounding what that structure is, that things work together in a seamless, united way. In your chapter, you talk a bit about like the really specific, you know, here's things about improvisation, here's things about key changes, that kind of granular um, approach. Looking at it in a, in a slightly bigger picture, you talk about growing into musical leadership and learning how to do this kind of worship. And what I see as someone who has worked exclusively, I think, yeah, I think exclusively in traditional and quote unquote blended worship services, I see a fundamental difference in how you think about music and what it is as part of the service. And I see um, something where, you know, if I decided, okay, I'm going to do a contemporary service, I'm the musician, 
I, I couldn't do that because it is such a collaborative kind of way of doing worship. It is very different from saying, and this is, I think, one, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is one of the arguments of the book. You can't just say we're going to have a contemporary worship service in our mainline denomination. And instead of the opening hymn, we've got a three song set and it includes a guitar and a bass guitar and a drum. Great. We did contemporary worship, right? That's not what's happening here at all. So how can you talk some about how this musical leadership is interacting, fitting in, like what what's actually going on here that's so different from the plug and kind of plug and play I did the hymn, I did my bit. Okay, now I'm going to wait and then I'm going to do my piece again. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, that's the, the the broader argument of my chapter is that contemporary worship is not just a question of repertory. Uh, and as you said, you can't just change some of the kind of the things of what you're singing and think that the job is done and making it feel like a contemporary service that, um, that people will respond in that way that feels contemporary. Instead, to make something truly contemporary, it requires a whole lot of other changes. Uh, it means that you need to change the style in which you play. Uh, it means that you need to think about how musicians work together in different ways. It changes the way in which you need to lead the music because you're relating to the congregation in a, in a different way. It changes the structure of the service because you're no longer kind of doing a, uh, a hymn sandwich of a service, but you're, you're doing uh, songs back to back and the songs in, in some way are, are the structure of the service in contemporary services. So to move towards contemporary worship in the music requires much more than just kind of updating the songs from Instead of we're singing something from the 19th century, we're going to sing something from the late 20th century. Instead, it's it's taking on a new musical language as part of a commitment to contemporizing your worship. I'd like to hear from Glenn about spoken transitions, and then maybe we can at, at some point circle back and think about, well, how do you start doing this? How do you, if you, if you feel, if you feel as a musician called to like go in this direction, how do you? How do you grow into that? Because you have a whole section on that. So, but let's talk about spoken transitions because I feel like this is a really integral part of, it is an integral part of what's going on. Yeah, so this is Glenn. And the chapter I contributed to our book was about what gets said or what gets spoken during a service. And there's, I have a, a couple of sections there on on preparing scripture to be read out loud and how to lead prayers and some things to consider as you preach. Um but, but I think the main point is that when you add worship or, or you begin to worship in a contemporary format, it really raises the stakes about keeping your place and being, being able to know what's going on. Sarah, I imagine most of your listeners work in church settings where there's a bulletin. And so people can read from top to bottom. Even before the service begins, they get the flow. They get the sense of where this is going to start, where it's going to end, mm-hmm. what's going to happen. Ooh, we get to sing my favorite hymn after the sermon. Exactly. Exactly. In most contemporary services or praise and worship services, there is no bulletin. There's no written form that the congregation gets to read. And so the leadership has to guide people from step to step in what happens. You Um, refer to it as signposting. Yeah. So signposting is an important skill. Uh, You may not need to think about that as intentionally if you have a bulletin because people can do their own signposting. 
They can say, oh, we just heard this scripture and now we're going to sing this song. Mm -hmm. Or you don't even have to say, now we're going to sing the song. It's right there in the bulletin and the organ has started and okay, I know I'm supposed to turn to this page or sing whatever is printed in the bulletin. Okay. Yeah. And I would argue that in good traditional services, you don't say that. You just let it oh, happen. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. strange. It's strange. Like, <laughs> and that's duplicating and that, your labor here. And that's one of the discontinuities that happens in like in my uh, denomination, the United Methodist Church, where you have a traditional service in the congregation, but you also have a contemporary service. And uh, there's a lot of angst going on as pastors and staff try to navigate how do these two worlds differ. And, and you don't transition in the same way in a traditional service as you do in a contemporary service. And so the signposting that I'm suggesting is really simple. It's that you name where you've been, you name where you're headed, and then you make it clear what the congregation's supposed to do right now. And so like, for example, if you're going to talk between a scripture reading and a song, um, I have this as an, as an example in the book, you can say something like God whose grace relentlessly pursues us also provides a home for when we return. So let's together stand and sing this song of praise to the one who is our hiding place. What you're suggesting here, like that framework of here's where we've been, here's where we're going, here's what you need to do, sums it all up. And yet there's this whole spiritual component in all the all the examples that you give that to me, it seems that you are making evident to everyone in the congregation, kind of like, here's why this matters. Here's why we care. Or here's why this is even a cohesive whole. Right. Yeah, it ties into the act of remembering and that anamnesis or remembrance is a very important aspect of worship. And it's something that we do. It's why we read the scripture. It's why we hear the word proclaimed. And so just working that into the fabric of the service itself, even into the smallest unit of a, you know, of a 20 second spoken transition, I think is a theological statement. Mm-hmm. And where have we been and where is God taking the whole thing? Yeah, right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Not even, I'm sprinkled is not the right word. It's intentionally placed at all these junctures. Um, it reminds me uh, in how in some traditional services, the bulletin provides that for you. In, and I'm thinking of how I've seen many bulletins where there's a sidebar and the sidebar has a little blurb about, here's what's going on with the great Thanksgiving. Here's what's going on with the scripture. There, it's and it's a way of signaling to the many people in the church who are not actually "quote unquote" church, who have not been there all the time and aren't quite sure. Like, oh, there's this thing, and it it just keeps happening, and don't understand that because they don't in the service have these spoken transitions because they don't make that explicit verbally. Yep, yep. And to do that verbally in every service would just be relentless because you have people that know what those things are and they don't need to be told every time. Um, so, so that's a part of leadership discernment. You know, what do I say here? Um, who's, who's the audience? What do they need to know in this moment? Jonathan. So, I mean, I was thinking as well as it, it doesn't just, these kind of spoken transitions don't just provide information. Uh, I think in these kind of contemporary services, they also serve another, inf- another function, which is invitation. Kind of if you put if you put a box in a in a bulletin, it's it's there as a kind of some information about what does this shape mean. But by having someone speak it to the congregation, it's a way of saying to the congregation, "Here's where we've been. Here's where we're going. Would you please join us in this? And this is why it's important. This is why we want you to be a part of this." 
this is something that I have been doing in a way that I never had before with the online worship that my church is currently doing. And we are recording in July. Uh, who knows what we will be doing in September when this episode comes out. Um, but we are, I, I'm normally, you know, we have a bulletin and we're going to sing 300 whatever and it's in the bulletin or you can ju- grab the hymnal. Great. I don't say a word in the entire service, right? I'm the minister of music. I don't say a single word usually. But when we're all online, I invite people to sing and I cue them to what the song is and I give them, you know, some phrases from the song. I might say something spiritual about it. I might, I don't know, it depends how I'm feeling that day, you know, but, but it's, I feel that it's very necessary because we don't have that apparatus of the bulletin because we don't have, we don't have those other cues and otherwise for the kind of service that we're doing. And again, this isn't about musical style. This is just about the flow of the service. Otherwise it's just like, Oh, well, pastor so-and-so did this and then this happened and then this happened. And if you don't have those spoken transitions, it feels really choppy. And I, I'd actually like to ask Andrew um, to talk about your section of the book, which deals with visual presentation and has a section on video. Right. And of course, given the times that we're living in, that's more important than ever. Uh, some churches have been doing it a long time and, and some right now are having to figure it out. In the chapter, I kind of talk about three different things that keep in mind when you're, when you're putting videos in, in order to have a, a flow that allows the service to move more easily. Uh, the first is just the purpose of the videos that you're putting in. The basic commitment there is this, if it doesn't serve a greater purpose in the service, don't have it. You don't need to just have videos to say you have videos in your service, but it can give information. It can perform a liturgical action. Uh, For instance, I find it great that you can have like a a homebound person in your church lead a prayer and throw it on a video. So they're still part of your church. Uh, If you have a snowbird kind of person who's only at your church six months at a time, you can throw them up there at a different time. Just remind people, hey, they're part of us. Uh, And that's really important right now to show faces people aren't used to seeing when they're doing it online church. And two, it can just add a a greater experience uh, to the sermon. You can talk about a battle scene for five minutes, or you can show a 15-second clip and people can get it just as quickly, right, or more quickly. But beyond the purpose, the second thing I talk about there is the the quality of the video, and I think that's really important right now. Now, when I say that, I, I don't mean that it has to be professional quality for it to work. I mean, obviously, right now, a lot of churches are just scrambling to get something put together. But there's some basic things, right, that, that allow uh, the quality to be good and also to allow a, a flow that doesn't disrupt. And so things like, is there, is there a lot on faces where you can actually see the faces? Can you hear the sound or is it muffled? Uh, is the music behind the video congruent with what's happening, right? You don't want fast-paced music at a slow point in a service, right? That doesn't uh, fit. Do the scenes that you're cutting between, do, the, do those have a nice transition between them or does it seem choppy you know things like that will either draw people into something especially online or you'll lose them based on your ability to to do those things and the third thing i talk about is length which i think is really important and of course that's contextual each church might have a different expectation or a different amount of patience for different things you know like for me the thing i recommend in the book is you know if you have 60 to 90 seconds for announcements uh, prayers testimonies scripture readings go a couple minutes there, uh, video clips, three minutes, generally speaking, things like that. Uh, of course, the thing is this, everyone can feel it. If it goes too long, 
<laughs> yeah, and you can see it on their faces. Right. Um, I mean, you know, the terrible example once I, I preached at a church that was doing a pastoral kind of appreciation day and they had a video that no one had watched before the service happened. They just played it in the service. I think it was 12 minutes long. You know, there's only too many times you can hear the words, thank you for being a great pastor before that just kind of loses its meaning. No. <laughs> we'll give you an example of meaning. Let's go. Let's get the cake. <laughs> So it gives you an idea. There's just those basic things that, that will allow people to engage without either being distracted or bored. But when done right, it can really draw people in in a special way, especially right now, again, with everything going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that I've noticed, because you mentioned uh, quality of video, given that I'm in a smaller church, uh, we're doing some very, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but we're doing a really good job with our online worship. And of course, it's not like professional, professional quality, because, you know, we're the children's minister and the minister of music, right? Um, Making this. But what I've noticed is that if we put something that in that is truly professional quality, like we pull in a video for, um, I I don't remember what the instance was, it actually feels jarring because it's such a different like aesthetic. And, And I think that maybe it is about aesthetic and not, you know, we're not talking about not being audible or not being visible. Like, given that those things are there, it's like out of the fabric of the service, which to me goes back to this whole idea of flow, which is that the service is all of one piece. These are not just objects of the service. Well, we did the, you know, we did the doxology and now we have our video and now we have our this. It's that this is all connected together and has a, I think a similar aesthetic. Yeah. Yes. Because if you see something that is a very high quality, then you automatically now notice when the next thing that happens in the service isn't in a way that you weren't even aware of before you saw the higher quality deal, um, which is an unfortunate kind of side effect of how it works, but nevertheless, people notice it. Mm-hmm. Debbie, you contributed an entire example of a service, and it's really wonderful because it has all of this, all of these songs written down. It has um, a sermon and discussion. I love services that have discussion in them. And you have notes running along the whole thing. Like, here's how the service is working. And you're illustrating, I think, in this, in this uh, essay, how, how you can imagine the service, like just the whole thing coming together. Like we're talking about these discrete elements and you're like, here's how it fits in the big picture. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, I was asked to do this sample service and to be honest, I had some mixed feelings about it because I think part of what we're trying to say uh, with, you know, with flow and contemporary worship is that it's not defined by a, by a specific structure, right? So it's not, you know, it's not like here's a template for you to follow, just like take out the song, insert your own song, take out this prayer, insert another prayer. And there's always the worry that, you know, when you put something in there as a sample that people are going to try to do that. I think that's just the the natural human tendency, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, the other thing that was uh, difficult about putting it together, I think, which also speaks to the nature of contemporary worship is that a lot of it, a lot of worship planning and design is or should be um, contextual, right? So it's really hard to design a service for an imaginary congregation, which is what I was having to do here, because, you know, you don't know what songs that they know, you don't know what generally happens. And, you know, even though we're saying that there is 
a lot of flexibility involved in contemporary worship. The reality is, and this isn't a bad thing, but from week to week, each church sort of has its own sense of rhythm, its own flow, if you will, um, for what happens in a service. Um, but yeah, I mean, I hope it's helpful to at least help people visualize some possibilities um, into, you know, I tried to talk through like how you see the different elements working together. How does, you know, the musical stuff that Jonathan talks about, how does that fit with the spoken transitions that Glenn talks about? One thing that really struck me in looking at the example service was how much music there is. And I think for uh, many folks in traditional services, um, I- I'm thinking of, you know, I live in the online space and I just, you know, follow all the, all the, all the good stuff, but also all the complaining that happens, you know, in Facebook groups. And oftentimes um, coming from traditional church musicians, it'll be like, they want to cut the hymn. They want to have, you know, three hymns instead of four hymns. They, you know, we're doing online worship and they said, I can't have as much music. And, you know, what do I do? My, my prelude can only be two minutes long. To me, that seems like such a, uh, I don't know what, such a traditional worship model concern. I'm not downplaying that concern at all, but it seems like very specific to a traditional service model. Whereas in this, it's like the music is, it's, it's almost like it's not through composed, but it's, it's there for almost the whole service. And I'm curious if you could talk a bit about how that relates to this whole, you know, we're talking about flow. What is the music doing there for such a huge portion of the service? I didn't count the number of songs. It was like, but like, I don't know, 10 songs or something was a lot. Yeah, I was looking just, I think it's about eight songs, which mm-hmm. is which is a lot. And again, you know, part of that is this is a sort of fic- fictitious congregation. I didn't know how long the service would be. Every church sort of does things differently. You have contemporary services that last an hour. You have some that go two, three hours. So obviously factors like time will play a different, uh, play a role in that. Um, I mean, part, I think part of the reason honestly, that so many songs made it into this specific sample service is that I like to sing. Um, (laughs) And so when I imagine, you know, designing a a service, uh, songs are the natural sort of tools for me to work with, just because that's, that's what I know, um, as a worship leader, choosing songs. And so I think it's also important to recognize that who you are as a as a person is going to influence the way that you design services and to play into those strengths, but also to recognize that as a possible limitation and um, to invite others into the process of designing things. Um, I think, you know, I think worship design happens best when you do it as a team for, for many reasons, but that's one of them. But yeah, I think, I think another thing maybe about the role of music in contemporary worship is that, at least what we've tried to show in this book, I think collectively is that songs can serve quite a wide range of functions. Um, I don't know about you, but, you know, growing up, it's pretty common for me to think of, you know, even in contemporary worship, you think, okay, we open with a set of three or four songs. That's like the praise segment or like the praise and worship segment. And we're singing to God, we're uh, extolling God's name. We're doing all these things. And then that's where it ends. Um, But, you know, music can also serve as a prayer, right? Uh, Songs talk about different things. They're not all saying like, God is good, God is great. Like we need those songs, but that's not all there is. 
I think a limitation that we see in contemporary worship music in the repertoire is that there are, uh, while while in theory music can serve these many functions, we we tend to skew towards certain certain functions. And like most of the songs are written about, let's say, adoration, about praise. We don't see as many songs about lament, for example, or as many songs that can serve the function of you know, calling people to worship or calling people to confession and things like that. And so I think that's an area that we can grow in, in terms of contemporary worship. Jonathan. As I was just listening to Debbie, um, I was thinking about my kind of my own experience leading worship in a, leading music in a, in an Anglican church where I, we sing a fair amount. We'll probably sing eight or nine songs, but it, it won't be in the same kind of model as a, as a contemporary worship service. You know, we'll sing, the Gloria in Excelsis, we'll sing the Sanctus, we'll sing a gospel acclamation, we may sing the doxology, all these together kind of build up the com- component pieces. But I, so one of the, the things that is slightly controversial for kind of, for some of the people in my church who come from a higher church Episcopal background is that at the beginning of the service, we tend to sing two entrance songs. Uh, and generally, not always, it falls into a model that we have an entrance hymn and then we may sing a contemporary worship song after the entrance hymn. And I think, you know, I've, I've had conversation with people who feel like we should only sing one song. And generally, the sensibility there is we need an entrance song to fulfill the, the entrance. We need something that will cover the processional rites as the service begins. But I feel like the movement that you have in moving to contemporary worship is away from what must I sing to get this done to what can I sing? Uh, so there's a, a greater openness towards um, flexibility. There's a, there's a desire to kind of take more time for the, the worship service to spend more time singing because you can and because you enjoy it. In, in traditional services, you know, your, your organist will play a prelude, they'll play a, um, a postlude, and that music is not to be tampered with. Um, that is kind of, and it's a performance piece that is important. Um, and so the idea of music playing softly underneath the pastor as they, they round up the sermon uh, is just a very functional, different functional sense of what music does. Yeah, it's like what you were just talking about, Jonathan, where every piece has its discrete place. I mean, that's a, that's a certain mindset for how music works. And it's to be given your full attention. And other stuff really is not to overlap. Now, of course, you can have a procession. Um, you, there can be movement in the space, but usually not verbal information is supposed to transpire while there's music. While there is a very different sensibility in many contemporary services, almost to the point where, um, I mean, you, you talked about an entrance hymn, but in a lot of contemporary service, there's almost like in, entrance music where you've got a space where it's acceptable to arrive at any point, say in the first two songs, maybe three songs. And so it, it's almost like, a, you know, if somebody wants to be there at the very beginning and experience all of it, they can, but you're not quote unquote missing anything if you come in on the chorus of the second song, because you're still there for the most important moves. The entrance right as the congregation's entrance rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kind of, I mean, I think not to, not to beat this flow thing 
to the death and to draw on water metaphors too much, but <laughs> I think you could kind of think of you can kind of think of music in, in a contemporary service as the river that carries us along. Not that it serves that function in every service, but in, in many services, when you do have that sort of so-called background music flowing through, part of what it's doing is performing that, you know, that recognizable function of saying all of these things are connected. You know, the river, like your transitions, Glenn, it's sort of a way of moving us along from place to place. And, you know, lots of musicians, especially keyboardists, I think, in contemporary services will talk about how they how they decide what to play uh, based on, you know, a sensing of the mood or the atmosphere of of the service and of what's happening at that time. So it's very much still being really attentive to what's going on. Um, and its function, like you're saying, is not to draw attention to itself, but almost to help sort of lift up the other things that are going on. So, for example, I mean, I've been in a lot of Pentecostal churches where it's very routine that near the end of the sermon, the pastor will give the nod to whoever is playing the piano. And that's your kind of cue to come on and to start playing softly, not loudly, uh, softly underneath the pastor. And this is leading to some kind, it's leading to the next moment, which is is likely to be some kind of call for congregational prayer or to be prayed for. Some kind of ministry is going to take place. And so the music serves as that vehicle, as the river that helps move from one place to another. It's the service technology by which we get from one place to another. Throughout this whole conversation, I feel like there's an undercurrent of how collaborative designing this kind of a service is. Um, again, like I feel like for all the church musicians out there who are listening to this, like you might be so inspired to want to do something like this. You know, you might get, get books on this and read resources and you can't actually do this unless you're whole pastoral staff, everyone who's having input on the service, unless everybody is is on board with this kind of thing. And Jonathan, I'm wondering if you could start us off in that kind of area of the conversation. Yes. I mean, I would, I would precisely echo that is that it, it can't, even though contemporary worship often has quite heavy musical connotations, it's not a purely musical move. It's a it's a, it implicates the much wider team of people, particularly how the service is going to be led, how it's going to be structured, how you relate to the traditional materials that you may have used in, in your traditional services to guide the worship. But you, you certainly can't make this decision to go alone. It has to come from the, the pastoral leadership as they are heavily implicated in this. And it's, it's then a case, of, in my chapter, I talk about ordering the music to, to fit within the larger liturgical structure. Um, and so, and generally it's not the musician who sets the liturgical structure of the service. Um, so there's, there's definitely a need for a, a broader framework within which you are working and collaborate, collaborating. Anyone want to jump in? Yeah, I would say collaboration is definitely a key part of this book. And we're hoping that many churches will buy a copy for everyone on their staff. Guys, and I, I said this in the last episode about this, uh, about the book, you know, the, the book is like, you know, 110 pages. It's accessible to read in the best of ways. You're not going to be like, oh God, there's another footnote. 
I can't, you know, you can read this in the evening. It's, you know, and it's 15 bucks, you know, it's, it's a great book. i I have high hopes of reading it with, with my uh, staff colleagues. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, one of the things that you find in a lot of contemporary services, even the churches that, that speak that as their first language and who probably wouldn't necessarily pick up this book because they don't see the point because they're already flowing. Even in those churches that do a lot of it very well, you'll see a really hard seam that comes in the service between the quote unquote worship time and the preaching time. Mm-hmm. And and that's one thing we would love to speak into and just encourage folks to, to, to not make that a hard break, but to see the worship is leading up to the proclamation of the word and, and, and letting the very first words of the sermon, for example, you know, be, be a continuation of that worship and not like a time for the pastor to greet everybody. And, you know, cause, cause I think a lot is lost there when, um, when you don't continue that flow. I think sometimes I've seen this even in not contemporary services, but more broadly speaking, evangelical services where you have the first half is like music, prayers, announcements, stuff, choir, anthem, prayer, and then the sermon, right? It's just mm-hmm. like the two halves of the service and the moment of silence in between. Mm. It's like the only silence in the whole service. It's like everyone has settled down. They've gotten their Bibles and they're all ready. And it's like, it's suddenly in that big boomy, you know, gym or wherever they're worshiping. Suddenly it's quiet for five seconds and it's, it's distinct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you're dealing with longer, longer historical trends of Protestant worship that see the, hist- that see the preached word as the center. Um, yeah. Uh, that's partly what you're seeing there is this longstanding emphasis upon the preached word as the ultimate thing. Um, I think part of what we're trying to do with this book is a move towards the fourfold order. Um, so emphasizing table as well as word, but then trying to, in, in talking about flow, thinking about how the whole service needs to be an organic unity, not a kind of preparatory. And then the, the preached word. One thing that I've, that I'm thinking about in terms of small changes is, is just that we are not really talking about musical style in its really like instrumentation and we're not even talking about what specific type of repertoire we're singing you could be doing this with gospel music you could be doing this with contemporary worship music you could be doing this with traditional hymnody you would have to be adapting it but it's not about that and it's not about um you know and i I think that traditional musicians or or uh, people that we serve in the congregation hear contemporary and they think they're going to bring in a drum set and the plexiglass shield and and then we got the smoke machine and we're going to hell in a handbasket, that kind of thing. But actually you can do a contemporary service in the way that we're talking about, you know, with a piano, you can bring in some bassoon if you want, right? Like there's no reason that uh, your instrumentation necessarily has to, has to be altered. It's, it's about, it's at a much deeper level than the particular instruments that you choose, the particular songs that you choose, whether or not you're going to have slides on the wall so you can do videos. It, it's at a, it's at a much more fundamental level than this. It seems that we're talking about. It's both fundamental, but also, I mean, part of what you, you were just saying it, you have to, you have to use the tools and the skills and the people that you have because the worship is of that particular congregation. And it's, it, at the end of the day, it needs to serve the worship of that congregation. If, if it, if it places a hindrance, but 
between the congregation and their ability to um, to worship, to enter into the actions of worship, then you've gone astray. Um, and so it's both at a fundamental level, but also it it still needs to be, yeah, I, I, would, I, would, I would say of the congregation and for the congregation using the resources that you have at your disposal. Any final words, summation from any of y'all that you want to offer? I would just say, give yourself a great deal of grace in trying this. Uh, God will give you grace. Hopefully people will also give you grace. And because there's a lot of moving parts to this. When you read the book, just in terms of spoken transitions, musical transitions, visual transitions, there's a lot to take. I think Debbie's advice is great to, to take it in small steps, but also at that same time, don't beat yourself up when it goes poorly. I think this is especially helpful right now with the video aspect I mentioned, because I talk to so many pastors, they're just like, oh my goodness, help me, this isn't working kind of thing. And and I tell them, take small steps and don't beat yourself up when it doesn't go right, because right now people have a lot more grace than they normally do, because they realize you're having to learn a lot of new stuff. So it's a good time to try something like this, frankly, because everything is, is yeah. already that people will just think, oh, that's because of the pandemic, rather than thinking that you're right. So you can use it to your advantage, but also access the grace people are willing to give right now. I want to thank Debbie Wong, Glenn Stallsmith, Andrew Eastis, and Jonathan Ottaway for this wonderful conversation. And I know I said it earlier in the episode, but go and get Flow. Uh, you'll find it under Flow by Lester Ruth. Lester Ruth is the lead author on this uh, collection. It's really good. It's accessible. And I think that um, it has a, a it's a slim volume with a big argument to make. And I think it's one that we really need to be listening to. You can find the show notes for this episode at musicandthechurch.com, where you can also find lots of resources for church musicians and pastoral staff, including my other podcast, Getting to Nimble. And if you've enjoyed the show, please share it with your colleagues. If you'd like to get in touch, send me an email at musicandthechurch at gmail.com. I'll be back next month with another episode of Music and the Church with Sarah Bariza.